Hello, you're listening to Culture Call, the life and arts podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, an editor in New York. Coming up on today's show. What we have, which has never happened before, is the robust existence of a flourishing fantasy world, a world of systematically disseminated untruths. When we talk about reparations, we often talk about what do countries owe to their ex-colonies, but we don't often talk about the companies who act as a mechanism through which the exploitation is done. As you may know, this season my co-host Grizz is on maternity leave, and I'm on a quest to make sense of this year. (laughs) Kind of a big quest. I'm exploring questions like, how can art and culture reflect 2020 and help us make sense of it while it's still happening? And what's possible now for the future that would have seemed impossible before? The U.S. election results are in. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be the next president and VP of the United States. And on Saturday, November 7th, New York City erupted. It happened slowly and then all at once when the results came in. People were dancing and beeping in the streets and in the parks. Where I was, I found people cheering toward the center as if they were all watching something. And so I pushed up into the center of the crowd myself and I found that actually nothing was there. It was just pent up energy needing to be released. I personally wasn't ready to cheer quite yet. I felt still pretty gaslit from so many years of our democracy and our sense of reality being challenged that I didn't quite know whether I could trust it or whether it was safe to relax. But now, a couple weeks later, it's finally starting to sink in. So here we are. We're in a different phase. We have a little bit more knowledge about what's next. And after a number of conversations on this podcast with creators and colleagues over the last three episodes, there are a lot of dots to connect. Today, I wanted to bring in someone who could help us do just that. One of the joys of working for a global newspaper like the FT is that you're surrounded by true big picture people. And one of those people is Simon Shama. So here's who Simon is. Simon is British, but he's lived in the U.S. for more than three decades. He's a celebrated professor of art and art history who teaches at Columbia. He's an author. He's written more than 20 books. And he's also hosted several documentary series on what history and art history can teach us today. So if you watch the BBC or PBS, you've probably seen him in action. One recent example is a show on the BBC called The Romantics and Us. It's about how the romantic period has kind of set the groundwork for now, how it's actually very quietly informed a lot of things that we're doing now, whether it's our urge to protest, our obsession with self-examination, our newfound respect for nature, all sorts of things. Simon has Emmys, he's got BAFTAs, he's been knighted by the Queen. Turns out he's not bad at his job. (laughs) He's a regular writer for The New Yorker and a contributing editor here at the FT. I love Simon's writing. It's the kind of writing that you want to read out loud so you don't miss anything. I've shared a few of my favorite pieces he's written for the FT in the show notes. And you know, I really wanted Simon on to help give us any historical context we may be missing. As you know, the rhythms of history tend to repeat, and he knows them very well. So I asked if he could spare an hour. Simon's on holiday. He had no recording equipment. He had no headphones. He had no intention of working. But he said yes, and I'm glad he did. 
Afterward, I'll discuss my conversation with Simon with another one of my favorite FT brains, Neil Munchie. Neil is our West Africa correspondent in Lagos. He covered the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement here in the U.S., and recently he's been reporting on the legacy of colonialism in Belgium. He's also got a very global historical lens through which to see 2020. All right, here's Simon Shama. Simon Shama, thank you so much for joining me on Culture Call. Pleasure. You know, I feel like you really have the keys to the past (laughs) and what it can teach us about now and maybe hopefully what's to come too. And I'm curious how you're processing what happened over the past week and a half. Well, I'm I'm enjoying um, the luxury of temporary euphoria, really, Lila. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, democracy off the ventilator, but not yet out of the hospital completely. I think, right. really, um, <laughs> and it, it's a habit, particularly among us who are you know journalists as well, to not allow yourself to even have a day without asking a skeptical question about whether or not one's sense of relief or satisfaction is in fact a kind of foolish act of complacent self-congratulation. However, I think a lot of people have said, oh, for God's sake, just think of what it would have been like had the result gone differently. Not just a matter of uh, someone who apparently nearly 80 million people feel was unfit to be president, but also the status of science, uh, as Joe Biden keeps on telling us quite rightly, of knowledge, of, of fact, of truth, Mm. and also, I think, really, the normal operations of the Constitution as well. I mean, there were some really quite terrifying things over the past few months during the campaign. There were signs, for example, of the political colonization of the civil service, um, which is an absolutely basic page out of the playbook of authoritarians that you, and it's certainly happening in countries like um, Hungary, where Viktor Orban has proclaimed that democracy, liberal democracy, is over to be replaced by something he calls illiberal democracy. Mm-hmm. The first thing you do is turn the civil service into a brigade of political trustees. Very scary, I think. Um, was treating the Department of Justice as a kind of personal lawyer for the president, as a, as a, almost a kind of enforcing arm. You know that that does smell tremendously of the 1930s, even though I'm someone who keeps on telling people nobody's not the Third Reich, (laughs) not even the beginning of the Third Reich. But there are certain aspects of really when a democracy crumbles, Mm. uh, institutional aspects which seem to be headed our way, and I'm sure would have been headed our way were Donald Trump to have won another four years. So the sense of relief isn't simply shallow, vain, sort of, liberal piety. I I think it's tremendously real, but it's going to be a long slog. You know, Um, we're going to enter a period. And that's why I think actually, possibly anticipating your question, you know, what historical precedent does it remind you of? And the answer is none, really. It is is a moment that's completely idiosyncratic in a way. What we have, which has never happened before, is the kind of robust existence of a flourishing fantasy world, a world of systematically disseminated untruths, and the technology to make those fantasies and conspiracies and untruths instantly and massively and widely available through the internet. Yeah, you know, we've been talking about this on the show too, that like, this combination of dehumanization and misinformation (laughs) on the internet has gotten us here. 
You said in an interview I was listening to with Dean Bacay of the New York Times, you said Trump discovered the glee of hatred and turned it into political capital. And I feel like he's found a way to get so many people motivated to hate that they sort of twist themselves into pretzels to intellectualize or justify it. And that's something that I'm trying to figure out. Like, has that, you know, based on the reservoir of history, you know, like, where has that happened? 1930s feels like sort of a blunt. <laughs> um, Demonization of the other to the point that you want to actually commit violence against them is, of course, incredibly ancient, really. Um, and mm. if you're Jewish like me, it's sort of permanently on your bookshelf of memory. Mm -hmm. But I think what's, what's weird, really, and what seems to me to be unprecedented is that um, the other who you want to see humiliated, possibly physically assaulted, and permanently marginalized, that's to say kept forever from exercising power again, mm. are people in your own country yeah. um, who are pretty much just like you, yeah. you know? I mean, which is not to say that there's an extra pool of venom reserved for those who had the temerity to think that an African-American like Barack Obama could actually be president of the United States. But a lot of the mm -hmm. hatred against so-called establishment elites, and this is not unique to America, of course, is directed against those who seem to have unjustly got one foot up above you. And there, the educational divide reflected in voting patterns is really quite serious because there's a huge inequality between people who have a four-year college degree and those who don't in terms of salary expectations. And, and the sort yeah. of sense, really, that you need to sign on to a world of education, which is a kind of sneering at those who don't have it. And someone said the other day, Donald Trump talks just like us, in a way. And um, the kind of bridge between talk show talk and the lame gags, the lock em up chants, all that sort of thing. It's true in that sense. You know, that's not the language of debate. It's not the language of argument. It's not the language of rational mm. conversation. And it glories in the fact that it isn't. It's yelling and it's immensely fruitful. It's capable of kind of mutating into body language, for example, so that, you know, you've seen, as I have, all these fights that break out over wearing or not wearing of masks. The assumption that if you're wearing a mask, yeah. you're obeying the dictates of those uh, educated snobs of snooty people, mm. you know, who hold their nose at basic average common sense. And you think that's new, Simon? Oh, well, yeah, I do. I mean, if you think actually about yeah. working class movements all through the 19th century, in fact, from the 18th century, thinking of Britain now, but it would be absolutely massively true in the United States too. Or you think about immigrant populations, what's the first thing they drink deep of? Education. Um, the assumption was that education, knowledge of mm. the world, the ability to s distinguish between fantasy and fact would actually make your life. It would literally lead you forth, as etymologically the word education means. Mm -hmm. And to, I remember coming when I first came to America in 1964 and going to my, initially he, he was a quite educated man, but going to my uncle Elliot's basement in Morristown, New Jersey, <laughs> and you could not move for books. But the heart <laughs> of it were the kind of books like um, Horizon Magazines and Will and Ariel Durant. They were absolutely basic middle class, as it were, lay books, which was expected yeah. every American would kind of internalize 
and engage mm. with, actually, in order to go out into the world to do pretty much anything, to, to run a small yeah. store. And the fact that that's been replaced by, as it were, the wisdom in heavy air quotation marks of conspiracy by the QAnon belief, cult belief, mm. going into the tens of millions is uniquely horrifying and of our time, I think. The the other historical taproot, I would add, yeah. which certainly is relevant to today, and which is, I think, particularly American, is the privileging of the heart over the head of the belief in revelation, that yeah. revelation has a sort of deeper truth than any book could possibly supply, that sort of book learning is all very well, but it's of a kind of narrowly arid kind compared to the instant numinous illumination of a kind of cultic epiphany. That's very, very deep. Why is that so American? What what makes it so American though is my Oh what makes it so American? Well yeah. you know who began who began America? The um you know the Pilgrim Fathers. It was yeah. began with Puritanism was absolutely full of intuitive ecstasy. Right. And you know if you think about the founding fathers, um, it's astonishing, really, in a way, that very few of them were captive to that kind of sense of interior intuitive knowledge. Jefferson always felt that his most important accomplishment was the founding of the University of Virginia. The working assumption of the kind of cultural bedrock on which America would be founded and would flourish um, was the discerning of truth. You know, there was no pulling out, really, um, of these sort of deep roots of folk wisdom. And the folk wisdom folk wisdom can turn very nasty. QAnon yeah. is the, the proof of that. Yeah. As you were speaking, Simon, I was reminded of when I lived in, I lived in London for about three years um, during Trump's first election. And so through the campaign, I was watching it with British people. And uh, I think Michelle Obama was giving a speech and I was with um, some British friends and she said, and America is the best country in this world. You know, there was like a lot of rhetoric that I was so used to hearing as an American, sort of this like, you saying heart overhead, that I never really questioned until I saw it through the point of view <laughs> of, of Brits. And that's that's touchingly vivid, <laughs> Lila, that I recognize it completely. Um, in, in many ways, you know, I buy into a version which says America is often feels like the best place in the world. But of course, there are two different versions of that. One is the story of America, which is all about immigration, which is all about looking out to the world and taking people back into the world. That sort of deep sense that um, it doesn't matter what your religion, doesn't matter what your language, it doesn't matter what your class, you know, you all kind of somehow are brought together in your ability to subscribe to the ideals enshrined in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. There's that sort of sense of, I would describe it as a kind of enlightenment or secular vocation. And there's the other sense of America being the best place of the world, which Donald Trump intuitively or, or strategically adopted, is showing your posterior to the rest of the world, um, is saying... Um, we are the best because we, you know, we want nothing to do with you. And we're just interested in the maximization of our own strength, really. And this is, this is not something that's just invented with Donald Trump. I mean, if you think about the debates over the 
acceptance or rejection. Here's me actually having said, Lila, there are no historical pres- precedents. That's what you get with the history professor <laughs> now finding lots of them. <laughs> Serve me right. <laughs> but if you think about the debates over the acceptance or rejection of the Versailles Treaty, or you think about the bitter debates really after the Second World War about what stake America had as being the guardian of democracy and the world rising out of the ashes of World War II, this is a debate which does have um, a lot of American history behind it. And, um, you know, Joe Biden undoubtedly will fill his administration with people who see their allegiance or equate American greatness with that um, traditional sense of mission, which has been particularly strong since the Second World War. And it's very moving. You know, Mm. there was one story above all I love, where it seems to me to canonize that sort of sense of America having a particular cultural vocation in the world. And that's the the journey around the world of Wendell Wilkie. Do you you know about that? No, I don't. So interesting and extremely moving. Wilkie, of course, was defeated by Roosevelt in the election of 1940. But he was commissioned by Roosevelt in 1942 to make a trip in a, a, a converted a bomber, I think it was, called the Gulliver, to the Middle East, to China, to South America, carrying the message of what would be the seeds of the United Nations to give people a sense, literally from one end of the world to the other, of what was at stake in the war, um, of what would flourish with democracy or what would die without it. And Wilkie was the most extraordinary evangelist for, for this message, um, too much of an evangelist for the likes of Winston Churchill, for example, because he saw exactly at that moment that decolonization and the end of the European empires was intrinsic to the prospering of democratic culture after the war. When he got back, he published um, a, a, a little book, uh, really a, a sort of extended essay called One World, which was the biggest non-fiction bestseller, I think, ever in the 20th century, actually. It sold million <laughs> after million copies. And it was a kind of hymn to multilateralism. And it is quite extraordinary. You can read it online. And you think, Christ, thems were the days, really. Yeah. I'm thinking about um, how much change you must have seen in America over the years that you've you've lived here. You wrote a really moving piece for us a few weeks ago Thanks. called The Two Americas. And at the end, you said you'd lived more than half your life here, that you've covered three conventions and written on six presidencies and experienced 9-11. And in spite of everything, you're still an optimist. (laughs) Um, Tell me a little about your experience of America over the years, how you've seen it change and whether you still feel like an optimist. Well, I've always felt I, I, I haven't changed my view that there is an extraordinary degree of resilience, both in American institutions and in what you might call the kind of spirit of citizenship in America, which sounds Mm. terribly like, you know, high school social studies curriculum (laughs) paragraph, really. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what followed George Bush's administration was indeed Barack Obama with an enormous vote, you know, and a triumph that seemed inconceivable, just... Uh, a few years before, and I do remember, I was filming um, the series that I made for the BBC called The American Future of History, and then was writing a book about it. So I was there 
you know, zealot-like, as a lot of my life has <laughs> undeservedly been, really. <laughs> I was there when Barack Obama won the Iowa caucus. Wow. And he made a wonderful speech. I, I again, had this kind of surge of sappy <laughs> um, joyfulness, really, about the uh, Biden. I, whoever gave him that word is rather brilliant, I think, actually. I suspect a speechwriter of some sort that he says, when you think of America, the one word that strikes you is possibilities. And I certainly felt that extremely intensely on that evening in Des Moines in 2008. Yes, I agree. You know, I mean, if the election had gone horribly the other way or the other way definitively at all, you know, we might not be able to be having this conversation. But the, mm -hmm. you know, possibilities are, for example, you think of the Women's March, you think of the results of the election of 2018, mm. but you and I have both seen over the past few years an absolutely unprecedented mobilization of citizens' action. Um, Black Lives Matter, you know, we'll honor to it really, but mm -hmm. it's a matter of kind of street togetherness, really, but just as important as everybody's saying, quite rightly now, uh, Stacey Abrams' campaign in Georgia, in mm -hmm. Georgia, I know. you know, to mobilize enough of the votes to actually turn, in presidential terms at least, Georgia blue. So that is just to sort of say there's a lot of juice left in democratic culture, you know, left in American life. I'm curious sort of what you think Biden represents. To me, he feels sort of like a Tums or like a Rennie's, like a, <laughs> like a base for an acidic stomach. <laughs> I think that's very nice that the antacid president, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> right. do you know, I think you should order the t-shirts really. They'll wear them at inauguration or again, not possibly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, Joe Biden, more like relief than joy. Yeah, I think, that, <laughs> I think that's completely brilliant. Um, I, no, I think I think that the entire country, or a lot of the country anyway, more than just the people who voted for Joe Biden, I think, are desperately in need of moral, political, and psychological antacid, <laughs> you know. Uh, ultimately, the sort of weaponization of hatred just sort of eats at the psyche of those temporarily enjoying it, I think, eventually. Your Lila's political antacid is almost as important as the <laughs> forthcoming vaccine, inshallah, that we'll all, certainly we oldies are going to be getting, mm -hmm. um, is that you do need not to be tearing each other's viscera out with, you know, bloodied claws at a time when the country right. is in a sort of catastrophic emergency. Yeah, yeah. Um, Simon, I just want you to know that I've had to mute myself, but I'm 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 really enjoying this, and I'm laughing and and making a lot of positive sounds. My job in life <laughs> is to talking. make you laugh. I think really others do. <laughs> I did I did stand up in Chicago once. Oh really? Yes. Find it. It's called Simon Sharma tells Jewish <laughs> jokes with the 800 elderly Jews in Chicago. And if you survive that, you can survive anything, even Donald Trump. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, I'd love to talk with you a little bit about the role of art right now. I am very interested in the fact that you're both a historian and an art historian. And I'm curious academically sort of how unusual that is. Less than you might imagine, for example. But I, but I always absolutely had this sense in which the world of images really had something to say. I, mm. I particularly remember being sort of annoyed when historians used art as illustrations in a kind of dumbly literal way. I remember actually being particularly irritated by this, by uh, by the use of Goya's great dark masterpiece, the 
3rd of May, 1808, which shows a firing squad executing a Spanish rebel in Madrid, being taken as some sort of photograph, sort of piece of early visual reportage, where, of course, Goya wasn't there. Um, He was in Madrid at that time. And the entirety of that ferocious, unprecedentedly brutal image of a kind of official killing machine was an extension Mm -hmm. of a set of ideas that he had. So the sort of sense in which history was thought to be purely texts um, and that images were not texts seemed to me an awful kind of impoverishment, really, an intellectual and Mm. scholarly impoverishment. And I felt this about my first book, oddly enough, which is a very large, very long, and even by my standards, overwritten book called Patriots and Liberators (laughs) about how the French behaved when they were ostensibly liberating. It didn't occur to me when I was writing it that I should have been looking at caricatures, that I should have been looking at illustrated admonitions for exercises in in fasting, which is what happened in the Netherlands. All the the whole wealth of what Owen Panofsky called the iconology of a culture so yeah. from then on, I think it was a mixture, actually, of thinking in a kind of Panofsky-like way about iconology and turning mm-hmm. myself into a bit of an anthropologist. It still bugs me, Lila, actually, that mm. um, historians don't see the point of becoming learned in the eloquence of images. The other way around, um, art historians have become compulsive historians to the extent that they often rob art of its own independent language. I have been thinking in in these days about how it's sort of hard to figure out what the symbols and images are going to be that will sort of reflect this time. Do you have any sense of what kind of art you would expect to see emerging now? What sort of symbols or imagery are going to represent, you know, a mask? I don't know. (laughs) It's different than one event. It's sort of this long extended period of time. Uh, yeah, maybe a mask is absolutely very, you know, very likely to be, you know, part of the way. And I'm sure you're right about masks, but it, but it's too soon to start. I'm remembering that, you know, people were were struggling about how to register 9-11 in art. It was only some years later that Gerhard Richter, who had actually been flying into New York at that very moment, and his plane was actually diverted to Chicago, and he, you know, obviously he didn't come back to America for a long time, but this kind of nagged at him. And I don't know if you know the relatively small painting, but it is in its way an extraordinary masterpiece, I think, called September, um, mm. which is, you, you know it, right? It, it's, it's really, it's not, it's, it's an image as seen on a slightly pixel-disturbed monitor. He has this extraordinary expertise of delivering this very, high-licked finish, this emulsion, lacquer-like finish. It was a record of the way in which millions of people first registered the the horror of a plane with this great kind of extraordinary flower-like blossoming of flame bursting from the skyscraper. Um, And then he abraded it. And then he kind of, by his own account, I think woke up in the middle of the night and he thought, well, that's terrible too, because it is slick in a sort of, complacently formalistic way and then kind of abraded the image scoured it as well while keeping some of the lacquer like patina um so that took years and it is it is extraordinary that to me is the 
is the icon of that particular catastrophe because it's both about closeness and distance, about electronic distance in particular. Yeah, yeah. Simon, you wrote a piece about the role of statues on display that I found really interesting for the Financial Times. It was in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement in the summer, the sort of the the peak of it, and statues of slave owners and imperialists were being toppled throughout the UK and around the world. And you said statues are not history, rather it's opposite. And I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit about that, sort of the role of, of these statues and what they do, what they should do. <laughs> you know, history is an argument without end. And above all, um, mm-hmm. self-criticism, collective self-criticism. The whole life of a free democracy really lies in that insatiable commitment to endless re-examination in the interests of passing down the truth. Statues are a way of freezing reverence. They tell us much more about the mindset of those who want to do that. In other words, stop the action at the moment where it cannot possibly be vulnerable to historical re-examination. Interesting. So so when statues from the past are put into the center of a town square (laughs) versus a museum, they're really not in any context. Exactly, exactly. And of course, they never fulfill their obligation because they're solemn and dull and idealized very (laughs) often. And people walk past them having not the faintest idea who they were. So neither excoriating nor revering them, really. Right. Simon, thank you so much. My last thing sort of, you know, what are you doing for fun? I find myself like buying very obscure spices and I've been propagating my plants, but... (laughs) Me, I'm a sort of feverish cook. It's the only thing that really kind of calms me down. And I've just been cooking like a madman, really. And um, it absolutely makes me much more human. And I'm completely addicted to Midnight Diner. It's on Netflix. It's like Japanese Chekhov. Um, It's about cooking, but it's also about all of human life in an alleyway diner that opens between midnight and dawn. It is absolutely fantastic. It's a glorious thing. Yes, we had a listener who suggested it as well. Oh, you watch it, Lila. You um, you'll thank me. You'll thank me. I, I will expect the email of thanks. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, Simon, thank you so much for, for your time and your wisdom. I really have so enjoyed this. Yes. A pleasure. Me too, Lila. I am now thrilled to have on the line Neil Munchie from Lagos, Nigeria. Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So Neil, you and I first met when you were a reporter in New York. You were writing about race in America. And before that, you were reporting in Chicago and Detroit and Ferguson. And before that, in Mumbai and Delhi. And now you're reporting across West Africa. Can you tell me a little bit about your beat over the years and the thread that holds the reporting you care most about together? My kind of reporting has been pretty varied. I mean, I don't want to be too grand about it, but I guess what I'm trying to do is like tell human stories that unpack. You can be grand. (laughs) That unpack some (laughs) of these broader social and economic themes. So here in Lagos and from West Africa, it's been urbanization, inequality, extremism, which is also kind of about climate and resource scarcity um, Mm. and the war on terror. It's kind of, I'm trying to tell stories through people about these broader global themes. 
So Simon and I ended our conversation on statues and how they freeze reverence and don't really allow for historic reexamination at all. And as he was talking, I was thinking a lot about your FT Magazine piece on how Belgium was reckoning with its barbaric legacy in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, it came out very recently. I'll put it in the show notes. But it begins with this statue of King Leopold, and then it kind of digs into where it comes from. Do you mind briefly explaining what what the piece is about? Yeah, so the, the post-George Floyd protests came to Belgium, and... People took to the streets to uh, protest against systemic racism, police brutality, and this sort of dark colonial history Belgium has with what is now the DRC. And also I covered sort of the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement in the US. It was also interesting that these protests had made their way around the world and were starting to sort of affect change in Belgium as well and how they kind of reckon with their history. So these protests had led to actual change, which was that the king wrote as he does every year, a letter to the president of Congo, of DRC, to congratulate them on the anniversary of independence. This year was 60 years uh, of independence, mm. so it was a big one. And the king wrote a letter in which he expressed his deepest regrets for the brutality of Leopold's reign and colonialism afterwards. And this was yeah. significant. It's not an apology, but you know, the, the monarchy in Belgium was celebrating Belgium bringing civilization, in air quotes, to Congo just pretty recently. So this is a big deal. And then the, yeah. the parliament set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And under pressure from black Belgian activists, they added reparations to it. Mm. So I started thinking about how when we talk about reparations, we often talk about countries, what do countries owe to their ex-colonies, but we don't often talk about the companies who in many cases act as like the mechanism through which the exploitation is done and yeah. who build fortunes and um, make a lot of money for people back home. And one subject of their ire were the countless statues around the country that are monuments to colonialism, which is a, a big part of Belgium's kind of great forgetting about what Leopold had done and kind of trying to mm. remake their image. And so next to the royal palace, I discovered a, a plaque at the back of the statue of King Leopold mounted on a horse that was cast in 1926. That pointed to a company, Union Minière du Haut-Katanga, which mm -hmm. uh, was one of the most important companies in Congolese history, uh, and indeed probably in Africa's. Mm -hmm. And that kind of sent me back into the archives of this company. You know, you were saying there's a lot of pressure now for countries to acknowledge the ways their wealth has been created, and often it's sort of on destruction and on human bodies, and that isn't happening as much for companies. How do you think that reckoning is going? <laughs> I mean, I think it's going to take time. Obviously, right, and the issue of reparations is pretty complicated. Who owes what yeah. to whom and when is difficult kind of to unpack, right? So. If we're in this cultural moment where we are thinking about systemic racism and the legacy of the past and how that impacts how this is happening now, we should be thinking more uh, deeply about how the companies that exist today were built upon this legacy, right? I spoke to a uh, business historian from Harvard called Jeffrey Jones, and he, he raised a good point, which is that the reparations part is complicated, but... What's not complicated is public acknowledgement and then 
using these lessons, this is who we were as a company, this is who one strand of our company was, uh, to inform decisions by the board today, to train new employees, to avoid these mistakes that were made in the past, instead of saying just, well, that's a different company, that was a different time, these are different people. Mm. Because a lot of these sort of exploitation and corruption, all this kind of stuff is still happening in Africa under different companies and different regimes. So it's important to sort of not hide that past, to acknowledge it, and for companies to try and learn from it. Yeah. So Neil, I'm curious what stood out to you from the conversation with Simon. There were a couple of things that stood out to me about sort of what made Trump more possible. One was the idea that education is something Americans used to sort of hold up or glorify, and now there's a little bit more disdain for being educated. And the other is just that idea of sort of privileging the heart over the head, that that kind of belief in revelation, um, that Americans are more likely to fall for, for cults or for folk wisdom, and that QAnon is proof of that. Yeah, so I mean, I like the strain of anti-intellectualism or anti-elitism, I think kind of goes back a long time. It was a big part of the appeal of Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, you know, mm. that that's that's kind of been there. And it's he's right in that it has gotten stronger, probably over time, probably mm -hmm. as sort of income inequality has increased. And that's in many ways related to education attainment on cults and American sort of susceptibility to to conspiracy theories that I mean, that could be true. But there are things that people believe in plenty of other places around the world that are, I don't know, unscientific, let's say. <laughs> Anti-vax sentiment is like really strong in parts of Europe. In some ways, like more acceptable than it is in the US where it tends to be a little bit more fringy. So I think it's worth keeping in mind that while Trump is a pretty singular figure in many ways, America doesn't have a monopoly on the things that brought him to power. Mm. You know, that's just, yeah. yeah. So America doesn't have a monopoly on the things that brought him to power, but there must be some things about America <laughs> that made him more likely to gain power. Yeah, I mean, I think there's also things about Trump, right? Like, he's got this kind of charisma. It's like this idea that there could be a Trumpism without Trump, right? Like, some other Republican is going to come along and inherit this mantle. It's going to be very hard for Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley right. or Tom Cotton to get on stage for an hour and a half and just extemporaneously riff, mostly talk about himself or cable television or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. no one's going to sit there for an hour and a half and listen to Ted Cruz uh, talk about that. And I don't think any other political figure really has the ability to do that. No one else has this ability that Trump's always had to hog the spotlight, to relentlessly draw the spotlight to himself for decades. Mm. There's really something about that, about him. There are probably plenty of things about America specifically, but the rise of the populist right is happening in India, it's happening in Turkey, it's happening in Europe, but there's kind of, there's really only one Trump. <laughs> That's for sure. You know, Neil, I feel like we've all gotten more local recently, like almost more inward focused. So the themes that I'm talking about here in the US, you know, threats to democracy, COVID's health precautions being politicized, movements for 
systemic inequality. Those are probably quite different to the conversations happening right now in Lagos. So I'm curious culturally how it's felt with COVID. Sort of what are the biggest concerns um, on people's minds where you are? I mean, I don't want to say the pandemic doesn't exist, but it nearly does not. People wear masks when they go in stores and, you know, you get a temperature check before you go in and that kind of thing. So life is really normal. Now, the thing, the biggest story in Nigeria for the last month has been the NSARS protests. So the Black Lives Matter protests of this summer did not really hit Nigeria. SARS, which is a federal police unit that's kind of notorious for allegations of gross human rights abuse, you know, torture, extrajudicial killings, harassment, abuse, assault, that kind of stuff. Um, Hashtag NSARS went viral in October after a video of what was allegedly a SARS officer killing uh, a young man went viral and people around the country started sharing their stories and being Mm. brutalized by this unit. And so that those those protests exploded out of the streets. The government cracked down pretty Mm. hard, especially here in Lagos. This unit, it's been disbanded, but there's also been kind of a government crackdown on the protest leaders, bank accounts being frozen, people getting arrested, passports being seized. So that's really kind of what what we're talking about Mm. in Nigeria right now. Um, Okay, just in the spirit of cultural discovery, like, is there anything that you have found yourself watching, listening to, reading, I mean, this this is going to make me seem like a philistine. But basically, <laughs> during the um, election day, night, slash the day after here, you know, there it was a very tense and anxious time in those days. I, I just, I couldn't watch CNN anymore and I needed something to take my mind off it. And so I started watching uh, Marvel movies, which I'm a big fan of. I have no bones about that. But I, I watched maybe six, seven <laughs> Marvel movies in a row over the course of a few days, starting with Captain America Winter Soldier and going from there. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I've been consuming lately. And it was great escapism. Awesome. Uh, Neil, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This was really fun. Yeah, thanks so much. That's almost it for this week. I'd love to take a minute to give a massive thank you to our listeners for writing in with your thoughts. Here are a few. Lucia Colmgen in London loves the orchestra, and she said, With regard to reimagining the actual concert experience digitally, Tom York's Netflix film Anima releases the orchestra from the confines of a stage organized in a semicircle fashion in front of a conductor and makes the most of the audiovisual magic that can be conjured via film. Aliyah Papagiorgiou recommends Ali Smith's seasonal books of autumn, winter, spring, and summer, which point to what's gone wrong in history and how it's led us here. She calls them unputdownable. And Rosemary in Paris wrote in after our episode with Io Tillett Wright to say, I wish I was as young as you exploring this new world. Hopefully even more taboos will be broken and an oh-so-fascinating new world will emerge. Please keep writing in. I would love to hear what you think is possible now, where you think we're going, and what history can teach us about this time. You can write me directly at culturecall at ft.com. I read every email that comes through. You can also find me on Instagram at Lila Rapp, and the podcast is on Twitter at ftculturecall. If you like what you hear, I would love if you would share this with your friends. You can also help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, which is one of the main ways that new listeners discover the show. I'll be back in two weeks' time. I've been Lila Raptopoulos. 
Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood at Scenery Studios. And our music is composed by Tristan Cassell Delavoie. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com.